You turn, please, to First uh, John in chapter five. First John chapter five, please. I want to read with beginning with verse five um, through verse thirteen. So, First John chapter five, verse five. Through verse 13. Upon finding that, let us uh, pray to ask God's blessing upon our reading, hearing, and thinking about this word. Father, um, be with us now, I pray. Um, Open our minds, our hearts, to believe so that we may see that which is true, and rejoice in it, as I pray in Jesus' name, amen. First John chapter 5. Actually, I'm going to begin with verse 4. This isn't in the text in your bulletin, but First uh, John chapter 5, verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son as life Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And then together we say, the grass withers, flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This uh, verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is? is the son of God. That, the, the, the question has its own answer, right? Uh, the one who's overcome the world is the one who believes that Jesus um, is the son of God. Now, when, when John speaks of the world, you remember, he's not talking about the world of God's creation in the beginning when God said it's good, but rather in its fallenness, the world in its sinfulness. That's how John understands the world here. We need to overcome that world. He speaks of it. You remember back in chapter two, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves, uh, if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the father, but from the world. And, And so we see that, that, that in this world is this motivation to fulfill the desires of the flesh, the sinfulness in us, these sinful desires in us. And the desires of the the eyes to look and say, I want that and I want that and I want that and everything out there is really for me, thus this sense of possession, covetousness, 
that all that I desire should be mine and the pride of life to accumulate, to take for myself even achievement, to show that I'm worthy, to show that I'm worthier than anybody else, this pride of life. And he says this world's passing away and it is opposed to doing the will of God because that's really what remains forever. I think Jesus describes this as well back in the Sermon on the Mount, if you have a Bible or something to flip back to Matthew and chapter 7. As Jesus is teaching there, verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it our few, this way of the world, if you will, is this, this wide gate that leads to this way, as Jesus puts, that's, um, that's easy. It's easy in the sense that, um, that no one is against us in this world as we live by its ways. We're not bucking the world system. We're living according to it. We're living by our own ways, and others are living by their own ways, and, and we all agree that that's a, a good way, a good way to go. It makes sense to all of us, this self-directed life, this life in which we define it ourselves, and we direct ourselves. Um, Jesus said that way is easy because there's no resistance from others, but it leads to destruction the destruction of our souls. Perhaps even unknowingly, we might be oblivious to it, but our souls are being destroyed. And then we know the ultimate end is, the, is hell itself. But we're quite aware. But Jesus contrasts this way with another way that is entered by a narrow gate. Narrow because... It isn't open to all kinds of opinions about who God is and how we're to live, but it's narrow because you enter it only by faith in Christ and Christ alone. And it leads, it leads to life. Jesus said this way is hard, not in contradiction to what John just said, not because the commandments of God are burdensome, Remember, it was Jesus who said, uh, uh, come to me, uh, all you are weary, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Uh, this yoke of Jesus is, is easy in that sense, not hard. Easy because it fits us. Easy because those who have been born of God say, no, this is really how to live. Thus, his commandments aren't burdensome. They fit us. They're right for us. We see that, but when Jesus said this way is hard in this context, what he means is that it's hard compared to, the, to this gate that leads into this easy way because there is resistance against us. It's hard because the world does come against us as we go this way. It's hard because there is opposition. It's hard because we are bucking the system, if you will, it's even hard because there might be persecution. For this is not the way that the world approves 
of living. But Jesus says, this end leads to life. You need life now, eternal life to come. So overcoming the world is important. Overcoming the world, the stakes are, are, are really high. In fact, uh, Jesus himself loves this idea of overcoming the world. He did it, you might remember. And John speaks to that in John chapter 16. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but don't, don't be afraid, don't fret, because I've overcome the world. And he calls us then in him to overcome the world. In fact, in the Revelation, we find uh, Jesus over and over again talking about those who overcome, for instance, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, he speaks to the church in Ephesus. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, that's the same word, to the one who overcomes. By the way, that's our word, Nike. We can just put a swoosh by that. The word who overcomes is an off. It's a derivation of that word. To the one who, who conquers, overcomes. I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the, para, uh, which is in the paradise of God. This overcoming is important. Um, then in verse 11, he speaks to the church in Smyrna. And he says, who is an ear? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers or overcome will not be hurt by the second death. That's the death of judgment. You won't be hurt by that. And then verse 17, he speaks to the church in Pergamum. And he says, he was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one accepts, the one who receives it. No one knows it except the one who receives it. I don't have time to get into all that, but it sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, you, you want that. Uh, verse 26, he speaks to the church in Thyatira. He says, the one who conquers, overcomes, and who keeps my word until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I'll give him the morning star. Then the church in Sardis, in chapter 3 and verse Five, this is the one who conquers, overcomes. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. And to the church in Philadelphia in verse 12 of chapter 3, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write in him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven my, and my own new name. And then to the church in Laodicea, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So you can see the stakes are high to overcome, to be one who conquers. And, and so that is what John has on his, his mind, overcoming the world. So the logical question, it seems to me, is, so how do we do that? We might even, from this context here, how does our, how does our faith overcome the world? That, that's, that's where my mind goes, but it's not where John's mind goes. John doesn't follow this up with talking about that 
In fact, even as he puts it in these verses four and five, he uses the word overcome three times. And one of the times he says, we already have overcome the world. And he says in the other two times that we'll continue to. It's, it's, it's his conclusion. In verse four, just to give you a little Greek grammar, it's a present participle. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That is, you're living in this life of overcoming the world now. He's confident of that. Uh, in the, the next sentence is an aorist participle, which means it happened in the past and is continuing to happen now. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. No, no doubt, even our faith at conversion. Then verse 5 is back to the present. Who is it that overcomes the world? And so, so for John, he's just he's making these statements. This is happening. This has happened. This is happening. And so now what John wants to do isn't tell us how, but that. Isn't telling us how, but that. That is, it's true. So the application this morning isn't how, but the fact that it's true. And so what should happen this morning, what John's intent and the Holy Spirit's intent is for your faith to be strengthened and your confidence in Christ to grow. Would you leave this place confident that the world won't get you, that your faith will be sustained that you will, in fact, overcome even as you have. Now, how does John do that? I think in a rather odd way. He, he, he sort of sets up a courtroom situation where he brings three to testify. And the three that he brings to testify are the water, the blood, and the spirit. Now, the spirit makes sense. I could give that. But the water and the blood is just an interesting, interesting thing. But what we have to realize is what John is doing is that he's taking the focus off of our faith and putting the focus on Jesus. See, this is how you can be confident, not so much in your faith, how strong it is or how long you've had it but in the fact that it's in Jesus, that he's the son of God. What John wants us to see here is that Jesus really is the son of God. And you might say, I know that, and, and I hope you do, but we need to take it up now because the Holy Spirit is the one who's carrying John along in his discussion. And what John is saying, that our faith is invested in Jesus, therefore, you have and will overcome the world. Nothing can snatch you away. Not even all the temptations. Not even all the values. Not even all the trinkets. Not even all the delights of the world. Know that. It focuses on Jesus. Sports teams often do that. They focus on a player. So go, as goes this player, so goes the whole team. I'll let you fill in the gap. Sometimes even families. I remember when I was in graduate school studying economics a long time ago that one of my fellow students was from a, a particular Asian country. 
and he felt the weight of the world, the weight of his family upon him because um, they had sold everything they had as a family to get him to the States to study. And everybody in his family, mom, dad, and his siblings were all working to send money so that he could, he could finish his degree because he was the hope of the family. They invested everything in him. Um, we invest everything in Jesus. So John focuses our attention upon him. And he lays it out like this. First witness, the water and blood. Now, you might imagine that in church history, there have been lots and lots and lots of ideas about water and the blood, what exactly this refers to. You, you might think, your mind might go to Jesus on the cross and the spear that goes in his side and water and blood come out. And you go, well, that's the testimony. But that just doesn't seem to cut it because it seems John is saying that uh, he came by the water and blood. And that expression came, uh, especially in John's epistle, but throughout the scripture gives this sense of purpose. He came for a reason and uh, water and blood. Uh, sacraments, some, even Luther and Calvin uh, say, well, this is baptism and, and communion. And yet to come by our baptism to come by communion blood makes us think of it, but what about the bread? So, so most these days would say that what John's referring to are bookends, if you will, in Jesus' life. Water, his baptism. Blood, his death. The spirit, the declaration that he's the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. Turn quickly to uh, Matthew and chapter 3. And verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is right to do. I've come for this purpose, so this is righteous. This is right for me to come and be baptized. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't baptized because he had sinned and needed to have some sort of a sign of and cleansing uh, for sin, a uh, sign of repentance. So when he comes, you see, he be he's beginning his ministry, and he begins by identifying with those for whom he came, identifying with sinners who need to be cleansed, identifying with sinners who need to repent. And so he undergoes and he enters in, it's as if he's, he's entering this ministry, and this is anointing to, to go forth, if you will. Because as he comes in this way, he's identifying really with us and also with the prophetic word of the suffering servant of Isaiah and others, that our iniquity is going to be laid upon him, and he's the one who will suffer for our sins. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. 
And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so God is saying, I'm pleased with this, my son. I'm pleased that he's entering into this work. I'm pleased that he's identifying with you. I'm pleased that he's come as the suffering servant. I'm pleased to accept him and all that he is and all that he does. I'm pleased with him. The testimony of God, the water speaks, you see. And then the blood. And of course, we we understand the, the meaning of blood. It means death. So this one who's come to suffer will suffer in the way that he will die. And Leviticus and uh, chapter 17 speaks of this blood. Verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, the life given makes atonement for the sin of sinners. The author of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews in chapter 9 and verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so it's when the blood testifies, the blood testifies and says, here's the son of God. He gave himself for the sins of sinners, his blood, his life for theirs. The blood testifies. And then the spirit. And how does the spirit of God testify? Well, in so many ways, um, turn to Romans in chapter 1. In verse, well, I'll read 1 through 4. As Paul begins, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was dis- descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who declares Jesus to be the Son of God by raising him from the dead. What does that mean? What's that declaration? Yes, he's the Son of God, which means he had no sin in himself. When he died, he didn't die paying the penalty for his own sin, but he died paying the penalty for the sins of others. And once that penalty had been paid, then he was free to go. And thus, he was raised. And when he was raised, the announcement, he's the son of God. That was the announcement at his baptism. As he identified with sinners as the suffering servant of God to take their iniquity upon himself. That was the testimony of the blood he died. The very son of God for us. And now the declaration of the Spirit. And that declaration continues, of course. You turn to Acts and chapter 1. The passage we know well, verse 8, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he's ascended. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And to wait for the Spirit of God to come upon them. Why? So that through... Um, 
by way of the Spirit and the empowering of the Spirit, they could give this witness, they could give the testimony of the Spirit that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. And that's what happened. Chapter 2, verse 1 in Acts. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what were they doing? They were telling of the mighty deeds of God. And then finally, Peter stands up to preach. And in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus, you see the testimony now comes, this Jesus, uh, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. That was the testimony. That was the witness of the Holy Spirit through the church by which he's still witnessing and testifying. And we can see it in chapter 5 and verse 32. And we are are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It's the witness you see of the Spirit of God through the church. That's the gospel. Now please note the power of John's presentation, verse 9. He says all of this to say this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gives us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever doesn't have the son of God does not have eternal life. This is no small thing, this water, this blood, the Holy Spirit. This is the testimony of God. If it isn't believed, the one who doesn't believe is saying that God is a liar. That causes chills to go up and down my spine. If we deny that Jesus has come and identified with us and has entered into this being, the suffering servant of God to take our sins upon himself, our guilt upon himself and given his life and died and risen, then we're denying the testimony of God. You know, one of the most, one of the saddest passages to me in all of the scripture, at least in one sense, is in John in chapter 12. And Jesus is speaking to a group of people, and he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. And I often think about that. I meditate upon that often very good Friday, I mean, Monday, Thursday times in Holy Week. The water is spoken. The blood is spoken, testified. The spirit is testified. How sad that people would simply say, it thundered. I, I missed it. If I may again quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He speaks of this believing in Jesus. He says the other practical thing, of course, is just to learn exactly what believing his evidence means. And here John puts it in a very few words. He that believeth, he's a King James guy. This was back in the 40s. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Oh, what important words these are. What an important little word, on. John doesn't mean to say, well, on the whole, I'm satisfied with the evidence, and I'm prepared to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. So I put down my book and prepared to argue with my friends, and we can all meet and have a discussion. After a long discussion, we come to the conclusion that we're satisfied that the claim made really does convince us that Jesus is the Son of God. And if I had Lloyd-Jones's fiery temper and wealth accent, you would understand this next expression's exclamation point. He says, that is not it. He that believeth on the Son of God, such a person, has abandoned himself to Christ. He has surrendered to him. He's the man who says, I look on him and I see the Savior, the Son of God, sent by God, and I'm under the wrath of God. I'm doomed, guilty, foul, sinner. And there, and there he is, the one who can deliver me. So I cast myself upon him just as I am without one plea. Lloyd comments, Lloyd-Jones comments like this. He says, you can give your intellectual assent to the truth, perhaps sitting comfortably or in a discussion but you can only believe on the Son of God on your knees. Or we could say, on our face. That's what it drives us. This isn't just a parlor discussion. Oh, sometimes uh, we have the testimony of many who say, well, we thought about this and we analyzed this and we explored this and we studied this and all of that. And that's all well and good. The means by which God brings to your attention these things and as you think through them. But ultimately, if you really believe, you get it and you say, as Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. I'm undone. And it drives you to your knees to surrender, and you say, I believe. And then God is sweet to confirm this. As John writes, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. He has the testimony in himself. I mean, if you've been ever asked the question by a friend, relative, anybody, somebody on an airplane, why do you believe in Jesus? 
And I don't know about you, but I, I began thinking through that with them. Sometimes I talk about the resurrection evidences, if you will. Sometimes I talk about just the historical Jesus and the historical evidence. I talk about the person of Jesus and all of that and what he's done and, and his death on the cross and what that means and, 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 and the joy of my own uh, experience of, 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 of knowing him. And, and, and a person looks at you with a, like a, this blank look on their eyes, in their eyes, and they simply say again, but, but why do you believe that? And so the tendency is then to say it again, but louder, right? Or maybe quote a few more, and they look at you again, and perhaps they, and, and, and they still don't believe, and they ask, well, why can you believe that? And, and, and you walk away from that going, why do I believe it? And, and then you say, but I do. And then difficulties come in your life. And that's where you cling to Christ. Because even though everything else may be taken away, this here I have. And I cling to it confidently and overcome the world. That's the witness of the Spirit to our spirit. That John writes in Romans 8, that testifies that he's the Son of God. And that we belong to him. His children adopted into his family. The water, this is my son. I accept his sacrifice. His blood. And I prove it by the resurrection of the dead. I declare it to you. And by the gospel. And by the witness within. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring he's the son of God. And we're declaring because he's the son of God, invest everything in him. All of my hope, I rest in him for life. rest in him and receive this life that's forevermore, that's eternal, that's from God. Rest in him. And nothing, not even the world, and everything in it can overtake me because I'm in him. And he's overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, please now, by the testimony of your word, by the water, the blood, by the witness of your spirit, please, I pray, 
strengthen our faith. As we, as we think about all that is happening in the world, whether it's a pandemic, or whether it's in the world of politics, or whether it's in racial relations, or whether it's in personal relationships, whether it's the grief that we feel when one we love dies, whether it's in the midst of our own personal suffering and difficulties, even our own sin. Grant to us the confidence, the assurance that you've declared Jesus to be the Son of God, and he is. And that we receive your testimony in your way as it begins with the water at baptism and dies and rises again. The finished work of Jesus declared to us. Please, I pray, work that in us. May this passage be embossed in our minds. The water, the blood, the spirit. That we may have confidence to live. And this I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.